Hello, sweet teachers and Pilates lovers. Welcome to the Thinking Pilates podcast, where we're having rich and sometimes way out there conversations about the Pilates mindset, movement practice, and how it just might help us be better humans. And of course, this beautiful thing called teaching. I'm Chantel Lopez. I'm the founder and the ringleader of this delightful circus. And I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, James Crater and Deborah Colway, who you'll be hearing from soon. The Thinking Pilates podcast is not only a passion project, but a critical platform for sharing and having open discussions about movement and teaching. And so if you're digging on what we're up to, you can help us thrive and grow by letting the world know what you think. You can do that by leaving us a review on iTunes, of course, which would be super awesome, and by liking our Facebook page, The Thinking Pilates Podcast. Your comments and shares of the episodes you love best are also really important to keeping these kinds of conversations going, so don't hesitate to jump in and let us and the world know what you think. After the show, we'll give you some more details about how to connect with each of us and more about what we're up to individually. A quick note and warning before we get started that in our enthusiasm, we have definitely been known to use a naughty word or two. And we hope you'll love all the words in between, too much to care. So without further ado, let's see what we're up to in this episode. Here we are again. It's episode five of season two. And today we have such a fantastic guest for you. I have to say that although I think every episode is really awesome, that this season we've had already such a phenomenal lineup of guests and Uh, One of the reasons why I think they're so awesome is because they are delightful, wonderful, generous human beings. And you don't always know going into an interview, but we, we really have been blessed with people who are not only generous with their knowledge and their time, but who are very clearly kind and deeply invested in the work that they're doing and making a difference in the world. And even some small, tiny way, and of course, to me and to probably many of you, they're making a huge impact. So today is no different. Today we're talking with Pete Hamill, who is a leadership coach and consultant, works with international organizations. Pete is the author of a book called Embodied Leadership, The Somatic Approach to Developing Your Leadership, which was published in 2013 and is the basis for much of what we talk about in this conversation. Before we get started talking to Pete, I wanted to share this paragraph from his Embodied Leadership website so you had a better sense of what we were getting into. Pete writes, We don't need leaders who know about leadership. We need leaders who embody the capacity to lead in the midst of ambiguity and complexity. The concept of embodied leadership is derived from somatic coaching, a unique approach that brings the body forward as an advocate in creating a place for change and transformation. It brings together language, action, feeling, and meaning, and is based on the idea that the mind and body are inextricably linked. To develop one, you must cultivate the other. And I just think that's so right on. I mean, you could change out the word leadership 
I think for teaching and uh, you'd really be hitting the spark of what we do and how we develop ourselves as teachers and our relationships with our students. So without further ado, the only other thing to be mindful about today is we're talking to Pete from the UK. So there are moments where we get that weird kind of alien static, but we've we've done a pretty good job editing most of that out. But if it gets a little a little weird, um, it won't stop you from hearing clearly. So you'll have to just bear with us on that. But in any case, let's get going. Hey, everyone. This is James Crater. I'm joined with Chantel Lopez. Hi, Chantel. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. 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 And our special guest for today is Mr. Pete Hamill. Hi, Pete. Hi. Good to, good to be connected with you. Uh, Pete is a wonderful author. And uh, Pete, how do you describe yourself as a somatic coach, a leadership coach, or what would be a good, what's a good title for you? Uh, let, let's just go with uh, leadership consultant and coach. A leadership consultant, wonderful. I, I, I tend to vary my title depending on who I'm talking to and what makes <laughs> most sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is, that is a conversation we have in Pilates frequently. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, how, do you describe, how do you describe yourself as an elevator speech? You know, like what do, you, mm-hmm. what do you say? How do you say that? So I'm always curious, like how do other people describe their professions when there's multifacets to it, right? Like there's a writing yeah. component, yeah. a coaching component, a, a doing component. So leadership consultant, I like that. Yeah, leadership consultant. That that kind of covers it. But uh, it, it's an interesting world, and and you know the 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 thing is, I think I always try to pick up on what's the the hook that's going to work with the different people that I'm talking to. Yeah, and for some people start off with somatic coach will work and some people it really won't so it's just trying to figure out what's the what's the thing that will get somebody to go oh tell me more <laughs> yeah 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 precisely so Chantelle and I were talking a little bit before the podcast today and she's like how how did you find out about Pete and his work and to tell you the truth I have no idea I can't recall <laughs> if it was I've, I've read your book a couple years ago and I can't recall if I had heard you on a on a YouTube or on a podcast, or if I just sort of found your found your work. So I don't really I don't really recall. But as we were planning this season, you were a name that kept coming up for me on on an authority on embodiment, leadership, and sort of the how to between those two, which is an important conversation here on on our podcast. Is what is what is embodiment? And then how do you utilize that embodiment? Like what it, like why, why even practice it? What, what is the point of it all? So <laughs> and big shoes for you to fill, but uh, I mean, you wrote, you literally wrote the book, Pete. So <laughs> there you go. You, you do have a point. You have me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh Pete's book is uh, Embodied Leadership. And how long ago did that come out? It came out in 2013. 2013. Um, so what is embodied leadership? Mm. So I suppose there's two aspects to to that conversation. The first is what is leadership? But I, I yeah. think um, leadership is widely misunderstood. But if... Um, 
if we simplify it for a moment and say that leadership at some level is about a, pro- a social process of organizing that provides some level of direction, some level of ways of aligning and coordinating, and some level of a shared commitment that we can, in, uh, at some level, subjugate our individual commitments towards a shared commitment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a way of understanding leadership as a social process that moves those things forward. Well, the, the embodied piece of it actually then starts to get into, well, do we have the capacity to uh, produce those kinds of social processes that move groups and organizations towards what they care about, or even just individuals towards what they care about? Uh, and I think the, the question of what they care about is a really important thing inside of that. We, we don't engage in a, um, in a conversation just for the sake of morally it's a good thing to do or that, you know, we should all just develop ourselves. Although some people hold that and that's fine. But actually it is about um, what do I care about and, and what is it going to take for me to be able to deliver on what I care about in the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, then we're in an really interesting conversation is, you know, the, the the self that I am, can that actually be a self that will be able to produce the social processes of organizing that allow this group or community to move towards what it cares about and what I care about um, or not? Do I have that capacity? And so the question then becomes with embodiment is what do I currently embody? Mm-hmm. Um, will that get me what I want and will it get me to what I care about and what's important to me? And then if not, then what do I need to embody in order to be able to do that? And, and I think that becomes a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. And so there's two ways then of looking at embodiment. The first is as a level of learning. Um, we kind of, uh, we all embody what it is to be ourselves. You know, it's, it's kind of a really obvious statement, but it, it's actually worth acknowledging. We, we, our personality to wake up every day and be us is something we already embody. You guys already embody what it is to be Americans. If I wanted to come over and try to fit in and be an American, I would have to have a set of rules in my head that I would have to follow in order to fit in, basically. Yeah. You guys already embody that. You don't have to think about that. There's no rules. There's no concepts. You just do it. It's, you, you have a mastery of that. And so a level of learning of mastery is kind of how do we get to a level of embodiment of our capacity to lead, to engage in the social processes of organizing that move us and the groups we're working with towards what we care about. And and so that's one level of it. And then there's another level of it, which is to say that when we embody something, we're inevitably embroadening our conversation to the actual physical body. Mm-hmm. And for most people in an organizational context, that's a pretty, um, that, that's not their obvious starting point. You know, they want to engage in a conversation of leadership that starts on a blackboard or a PowerPoint slide with some theories and models and concepts, <laughs> uh, not in a world of, uh, actually, I have to put my body into doing things and practices and what do I currently practice and does that work for me? So, you know, when I'm in a conflict situation, for example, if my historic practices mean that I'm kind of trying to crawl out the door backwards because I'm so viscerally uncomfortable with being in conflict that I can't tolerate being there, then 
you know, how do I start to actually look at what's going on in my biology, in my psychobiology, to understand that, to see that, to start to look at a different set of embodied practices that allow me to be in the room, to engage with other people, to try new moves around empathy or holding my ground or whatever it is that I might need to do. And those are really, you know, from my world, those are somatic or embodied processes. They're not just um, conceptual processes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we like to, I think, within the management and, and leadership strategy world to kind of conceptualize everything. But but these are, are for me, they're, they're somatic processes. They're, you know, when we withdraw from conflict, it's a physical, emotional, mental withdrawal. And the separation of those into different elements doesn't make sense. And so the learning of new actions, the learning of the capacity to hold our ground. I mean, even think about those words. What is it to physically hold our ground? Mm-hmm. But to, to hold our ground in conflict is uh, a, a somatic uh, thing, which is physical, emotional, mental, all together. And, and, and that separation doesn't really serve us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The so one thing- for- Go ahead. Go ahead, Chantel. Oh, well, I just wanted to, it's more of a comment, I think. um, What's interesting to me talking to you in general, Pete, is that from the movement educator's perspective, right, because, you know, our audience is either Pilates teachers or yoga teachers, or many of them are, you know, working with multiple modalities, but they are, I think that most of them would say they are embodied in the in the way that you're describing the second way you're describing it and yet what i also experience is um in my interactions with them is not fully is what i would say right they're not fully embodied to the degree that they're really using the embodied experience as a as a tool um you know for for showing up um you know in in a maybe more wholesome or complete way but the first the first idea of embodiment that you spoke to, I feel like is the, is the place where most of us as movement educators are, are actually really removed from that. We're not, we're not necessarily because I think a lot of movement educators believe that it's outside of their scope to really bring who they are, you know, personally in their, in their deepest core values um, to the relationship, right? It becomes much more of a, you know, professional boundary issue that, that I feel like that's part of the challenge we're actually facing is that there's, there is, um, what I would say, if I'm going to be totally honest is, uh, um, people are, people in our profession are not necessarily clear that they are not fully embodied, right? They think they are. And, and particularly in this first way, um, and, and it's, well, it's I, yeah, go ahead, James. Go ahead. No, well, I was going to say, I think, I think it's because, um, you know, something that I've, I've witnessed is that we hear about embodiment. We hear about somatics and it's something you sort of practice and then it gets classified as like, well, that's, that's a piece of what I'm doing. I, I can feel embodied when I need to feel embodied. But what I actually do as a profession is, an, is a whole other thing. So I have this embodied feeling sense that I can access and utilize when I'm moving or, you know, when I'm in an argument or maybe not or whatever. But that, that doesn't have a, a role in, in me as a professional, me as a leader. And I think that's, 
that's where I see that is, um, you know, it's, it's when you're trying to perform the role of a leader instead of just be the leader. Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, there's two, there's two aspects I can hear in, in what you're describing there. I think maybe more, but two that I can hear. Uh, there's one with clients um, and working with people. And, and what is our role in working with people, which is, you know, at some level, are we working on the body? Are we working with the body or are we working through the body? Mm-hmm. And, and in working through the body, what I'm talking about then is I'm working with the entire soma, the entire mind, body, spirit, um, or mm-hmm. however you want to contextualize that. But I'm working, you know, and, and ultimately the distinction of those into separate words is a conceit of language. It's it's um, they're, they're one thing. But but I'm am I conscious that I'm working with the whole thing and I'm working through the body with the self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that would be the the question, that, and that's one thing. So, and we can we can choose to work at different levels, and we may have um, different contracts with different clients, and different levels of permission with different people that we work with. But I think one of the things that we always need to know is that whenever we touch a body and work with a body, we're working with a history, yes. and that history is embodied, and any traumas are embodied. And when we start to work with that and change the patterns the ways of holding, the, the shaping, the, the historic way of holding and containing the, the, the life in the body that that person has developed over time. You, you're touching on all that history and all of that trauma, and, that, and that's part of what's there. Yeah. And, and I think for, for many people, that's, uh, uh, that can be a slightly scary thought of dealing with that. So the, the, that's the first question is, you know, in, in my practice, am I working on, with, or through? And, and I think those are different things. And then there's another second thing which you bring in, James, which is more about my role as a leader in the work that I do and about how I bring myself to that and what is the leadership that I uh, practice as a practitioner of my work, as a leader in my community, as somebody who is out there getting clients and building relationships with people and taking a leadership role inside of those groups and communities that I work in. Uh, and that's another aspect of it. And, and how do we bring ourselves to that role um, as well? So, so I, I'm hearing those two different uh, dimensions to what you say. Do, does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. I I totally. appreciate I appreciate very much this idea of working on on with or through the body. Um it just as a just as a matter of reflection, right, in terms of uh, our relationship um with the student in front of us. And and it's interesting and and it's not, I don't mean to be overly critical of my fellows because I think we're all doing a really a, a really wonderful job across the board. We've just been in this conversation and we've been peeling the layers away for quite some time now um on the podcast and and with different folks and I just think it's it's fascinating because there is um there is very clearly a willingness, whether it's um, conscious or unconscious, right, from us as teachers to be in relationship, right? We're choosing, whether we're choosing it consciously or not, to be in relationship with our students in one of these ways that you're describing, you know, working 
on the body or with the body or through the body. And, and uh, I think James, I'm, it just is fascinating because it is such a reflection of the conversations we've been having. And I think what's most comfortable for us is working um, on the body, right? Or with the body, um, primarily because there's a sense of I'm doing something to this body or I'm providing guidance or instruction for the body to potentially move well or move better. Um, and, and that's what we're taught, right? Professionally, from a baseline perspective, that's, that's what we're taught to do. Um, but what we know when we start to move down this path a bit more is that there's, there's no way to not be confronted, as you say, Pete, with the history, right? The embodied history. I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we we develop our ship, the the structure that we hold uh, inside of our body, as a an emotional thing that develops over our lifetime, and it provides us the structure of safety. And you know, in many respects, you can see how that ship responds to the environment that we're in. So I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland during a, a time of a lot of conflict and violence. And so my history, my historical shaping was one in which I got very good at disappearing. I got very good at making myself invisible inside of situations because that actually was a, a reasonably sensible response to the environment in which I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And so we can see that that ship, that was kind of like, you could see that mentally and you could see that as a kind of distancing that was going on, maybe a dissociation perhaps, but, you know, it was mentally, it was kind of watching the world and, and looking for safety. Mm-hmm. But that's also an emotional conversation and that's also a physical conversation. And it wasn't, you know, to, to separate that doesn't really work. So the structure that I held, the structure that I was at that time in my life was a collapsed and disappearing structure. And energetically holding energy in very, very tight, making myself very small. And if I was in a group, you know, by 10, 12 people, you wouldn't really notice me. I was very good at being able to be invisible. And so we can see that every single person has a structure that they've developed, which gives them their, um, the, the structure of their self. Yeah. And when we start to move and we start to play with that, it can change a lot of different things. And the other really important thing is that my body is my first point of reference for how I experience myself and how I experience the world. It really is. It's the first point of reference that I have to knowing whether or not I like this or I dislike this, whether or not I'm comfortable here or I'm uncomfortable here, whether or not this is okay or safe or not. And so when you start moving and reshaping that, you're reshaping the very barometer that somebody has about their experience of themselves and their experience of the world around them. And that's where I think the power of somatic and embodied work lies is that we can give somebody a radically different experience of themselves and and their world inside of which different possibilities for action show up different possibilities for ways of being ways of acting and and ultimately part of that is that actually part of what we care about starts to change and develop too so the kinds of leadership that get expressed develop as we do some more of this work and the other side of that is that it needs to be done, I think, with a lot of reverence for what it is that we're touching into and moving and shipping as being 
more than you know if we instrumentalize it or materialize it as just being moving a physical body that we really miss the essence of what we're doing when we're starting to work with the body mm-hmm. yeah that you know as i'm listening to it I'm like this is this is an amazing conversation being had between three people that you know have have worked on themselves, have chosen to look at, you know, some, some beautiful and some gritty aspects of, of themselves. How do people, how do people listening to this either, what are some beginning steps people listening to this can actually take to, to make these realizations about themselves or the first steps or can um, uh, guide a client to begin to realize that maybe they should be looking into this. So the, the, there's kind of two, two levels. There's one is working on myself as a practitioner and the other one is working with the client. And, mm-hmm. and I think um, one helpfully precedes the other. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, as, a, as a general principle. Um, so, you know, I think there are, there are lots of ways in which we can start to, um, begin to do more work on ourselves through our bodies. And, you know, you can look around and you can find people who have somatic coaching training, or you can find people who are doing Feldenkrais or Rolf and, but, but are doing it with a, a mindset that they're working through the body, not just on the body. And there are some great practitioners, especially, um, you know, I think there's some fantastic practitioners in the US um, who are, are very much doing that. And I think there's lots of possibilities for that. And there's also um, work that you can pick up and you can start to do some self-study work around developing your own uh, somatic awareness. But you know, anything that you do that brings you in contact with your body and being more physically aware of your somatic process, your emotional process and mental process that goes alongside it is a, is a core element of it. So the thing that I always kind of, when I'm working with people, I'm always asking about those three levels. Those are the three levels at which we start to um, have access to our own experience of reality. And so as somebody who's is everyone they're doing whatever work with themselves or with their clients is to start to inquire at those three levels, to inquire about what do I notice that's going on at the mental level, the cognitive level, that's the easiest one in our culture. Then go below that. What do I feel the mood or the emotion that sits underneath that that starts to give me the felt sense of my experience? And then the question becomes below that is, how do I know I have that mood or emotion? Because generally that brings us back to sensation in the body and the the awareness of the processes that are ongoing. And as we do that, as we cultivate that ability, part of what we're doing is we're cultivating our ability to see those processes as they happen in the body. And it always starts with the the physical. It always starts with the, the bodily process. We take a bodily process, we like it or we dislike it, we give it a, an emotional label, then we start to, that starts to drive our thinking. Mm-hmm. So always looking to get to the physical, the bodily process as the root of everything, because that's what appears first. And so that, that's a big piece that people can do 
and I really encourage people to find other people who are steps ahead of them on this path to help them in that process, to look at some of the resources that are out there. There's great stuff online. There's books. There's my book. There's um, Richard Strozzi Heckler. There's Wendy Clamour. There's great people who are writing about uh, embodied processes. So, so start to explore those things. You also asked about working with clients. And I always start, I mean, so it depends, I suppose. There's two two types of clients. Well, many types of clients, but I'll break them down. <laughs> it, it, it reminds me of the, the joke, uh, there are two types of people in the world, those who think there are two types of people in the world and those who don't. Um, anyway, so if I can break clients down, broad categories um firstly you've got clients who come to you because they're looking for something somatic they're looking to work through the body that's easier because your starting point is uh is much simpler because they know they come to you because they know you do this they're looking for this and that's easier you you kind of then start into a conversation with them about what they do at the moment or how do they experience the life in their body the pains in their body the tensions all of that sort of stuff and it's easy and then you get people who come to you and they come to you because they've got a problem and and they're not necessarily looking for a somatic process they've got a particular problem so in my world of leadership development, that will be somebody who comes to me and says, look, you know, I had a, a partner in a big uh, accountancy firm, um, had a big global client he was working with. He, um, he was massively conflict averse and his client was a bully. But he was leading the team and the team behind him were looking for him to be the one who fronted up to the bully. And he had no clue how to do this. <laughs> no clue. I mean, it just wasn't in him to be able to do that. So, you know, when I meet someone like that, I, my starting point is not um, to, to, my starting point is to build a narrative of relevance based on what he cares about. You know, it, it's here's what you care about. Here's why that's important to you. Here's how we can get you to a place where you can do something different. And therefore, kind of a, a story, a condition of relevance that gives you the trust that this actually will give you what you want. To look at the concern that's driving somebody to come to me and how do I connect to their concern? Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. Uh, okay. can, we, can we unpack the narrative idea Yes, a little bit more. Exactly what I was thinking. So, narrative of relevance for me, um, and it depends on the context that you're in, how you build a narrative of relevance. But for a lot of people these days in the business and organizational world, building a narrative of relevance out of neuroscience can be really, really helpful. Hmm. Um, I think neuroscience is used, but anyway, that, that's an aside. But is the, 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 the question is showing up for me and is having this problem with uh, conflict, for example. I've used the same example. He has um, this challenge. It comes from wherever it comes from in his history, usually his uh, immediate family or personal relationships. Um, but, you know, if I can start to talk to him about, okay, so what we've got here is... Um, some stuff that's going on in your brain. So you've got uh, some flight or fight mechanism. You can talk about an amygdala hijack. You can start to talk about all these different neuroscientific terms. 
it, it kind of goes, oh, there's a whole group of people, you know, who relax whenever you say science says. And they go, oh, that's okay. That's okay then. It, it must be okay then. And so there, there's a way in which I can construct a narrative out of that. But what I'm always looking to do is to construct a narrative that gets them from, here's what I care about, here's what's important to me, to this is why this will get me what I what I need. So for this guy, um, you know, what I was able to do with him was to build a narrative of relevance around, um, okay, so here's what's going on. And I used the concept of a somatic marker, which we'll maybe come back to, which comes from neuroscience. And I was able to kind of go, okay, so from your history, you've developed a particular orientation to, to, to conflict, which leaves you with this particular somatic marker. What that means is that whenever you're in conflict, you experience the same set of emotions that you've experienced ever since you were a child, basically, and, and this, these experiences started for you. And that somatic marker is driving your behavior in the moment. So I'm able to create a, a way of him understanding why it is that he is reacting to conflict the way he is, not as just that's just who I am and I, I just don't like conflict and, and that's just who I am, but actually, oh no, there's there's a way of understanding this and understanding the process that got me here. And therefore, if I understand the process that got me here, I can understand that actually there may be a process that will get me out of here. And then I can start to build a conversation around, so what happens to him somatically in response to this emotional experience that he has every time he's in conflict, et cetera. And, and, and we can start to build something from that that allows him to have an engagement. But there's an educative process really through a narrative of relevance that connects what he cares about to a somatic process of development. It's so brilliant because I don't think that we necessarily think or talk about it this way when we're working with the body. And yet what we often have to overcome, which can be a huge thing, is is that people, their belief about their potential and their ability to change, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's yeah. fascinating and it can happen at... Um, you know, such a wide range of levels. It doesn't have, it doesn't have to be that it's somebody who's having, you know, chronic pain or even acute pain or injury. Um, you know, it's, it, it's showing up in so many different ways for just your average, regular, you know, yeah. Joe Schmo oh, yeah. comes in and I mean, it could be anything. Awesome. I mean, I, I have a client, I have a client I'm thinking of in my head right now that she'll be in the middle of doing an exercise doing the exercise and and the words that are coming out of her mouth is I can't do it I can't do it I can't do it I'm like you're, you're literally doing it you're literally you're literally doing it right now and it's, you know, like you couldn't like what you're saying is an oxymoron like you're literally doing what you're saying you can't do but it's that somatic marker thing of of you know having had a previous experience doing something maybe with the muscle or in that same range of motion or whatever it is, and feeling the inability to do it and reliving the energy of being unable to do it while you're actually doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for many people, they will have domains of life around which they have an I can't orientation. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's it's the people who, excuse me, people who weren't good at sports at school for whatever reason. 
there's lots of reasons why people end up not being good at sports in school. One of the the biggest ones to, is it will be the month of birth yes, and yes. they're not really the youngest in the year, that kind of stuff. But they'll have that or they'll have it around art or they'll have it around languages or they'll have it around whatever. There's huge domains of life where people's first response is, I can't, through what they've learned over time. And that will be inevitably wedded in some somatic marker. And I, we haven't described somatic markers, so it's maybe helpful to do that for, for your audience. But a somatic marker for me is the emotional soundtrack of your experience. And we know, we've known for many years that, you know, there's so much of life that we forget. We remember that which has emotional significance. Otherwise, we basically forget it. Um, you know, it, it's the emotion that causes something to be held in memory. And so when we think back, you know, if somebody um, uh, has a really embarrassing experience, like they, they're giving a presentation in school and they have a really embarrassing experience and it goes wrong and they feel humiliated, that memory of that emotion stays with them. And what happens is, is whenever they encounter a situation that's similar to that, that emotional memory will replay itself. And this is basically, it's, a, it's an evolutionary thing that we've developed. At one point in time, it was helpful for us to have an emotional soundtrack that would play around danger to warn us before our cognitive brain could work out whether or not there was a mountain lion or a bear or whatever. We just had to go in and intuitively pick up what was there in the moment and know if there was danger. And so what we have is we have an emotional soundtrack, a somatic which replays and gives us the soundtrack of our, you know, the, the soundtrack of that experience in any future experience that looks or feels a little bit similar to, to guide us towards safety. Mm-hmm. And that plays out often before we're conscious of it. You know, we, we're not physically conscious of the discomfort and the emotional reaction that we feel in that moment, but we are reacting to it. Just like sometimes we scratch our noses without being aware that we were itchy. You know, we, we can do that. It's like the, the physical sensation lags behind our action to make ourselves more comfortable in the moment. And so what we see is that there's domains of life, there's places in life where, where people will go, I can't, because there is some history around their inability in this way. And they've kind of, they're carrying that somatic marker inside themselves that has them go, this is too much, I can't do this. And what they really are, the challenge that they're facing is, the can't is, I don't know how to contain the experience of feeling this intensity of emotion playing out in my body again. That's really what they can't. That's what it refers to. And so for me, the question is always, how do we bring ourselves back to being able to feel that experience, but feel it from a place of non-reaction? So to be able to feel it and be with it and face it, maybe face it for the first time. You know, to face into and look at that fear and experience it and see it for the first time. And then from a place of non-reaction, make a different choice. And our place of non-reaction comes through stimulating our vagus nerve through our breath mm-hmm. and actually bringing ourselves out of our flight and, follow, fight and flight mode into a rest and digest mode. mode. It's, it's all basic bodily processes, breath, relaxation, all of the stuff that brings us back into a place where we can choose. But it's doing that while staying in contact 
with the emotion and the emotional soundtrack of the experience so that we can actually then face it. And so that we can then actually start to move into and take different actions in the world. And for all of us, we've got, we've got those bits of work to do around ourselves. Um, yeah. James, you had a question about, uh, I mean, perhaps Pete, you've, you've kind of answered it, but in this process, would you say that the somatic marker then over time uh, can shift and we can create new somatic markers? Uh, do we create new somatic markers? Yes. Um, uh, trauma is a, a classic example of that, of mm-hmm. a new somatic marker being created in an instant, really. And, and that's right. why we call it trauma in some mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we're always developing new somatic markers. And we can... Um, and, and we can certainly develop new somatic practices as embodied practices that we can take with great ease in the world. That takes practice, but we can develop that over time. The shifting of somatic markers is a really interesting one. So uh, yes and no is the simple answer and, and the complex answer. So <laughs> yes, we can to some degree, but it really depends. It really depends mm-hmm. on the depth of what was created and the depth of the moment in which it was created, uh, the amount of work we do with it, and where we're able to get to with it. Um, so it's, I don't think there is a, a black and white simple answer for all people at all times. Mm. Yes, there are, there are ones we can definitely do some work on and shift. There are others where you know, we'll, be, we'll be in situations and we'll, we'll kind of be able to see it and it'll come up. And then we can start to greet it like a friend and face it and go, okay, I, I can feel that. I can feel that fear. I can feel that, that emotion. I kind of would have been surprised if it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm going to choose to take whatever action I'm going to choose to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a place that we can get to, which is to, to be able to greet it almost as an old friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, yes, but but I wouldn't say that that's a blanket, yes. Yeah, I think, you know, listening to you uh, talk about, listening to you talk about leadership and talk about um, dialoguing with somatic markers and experience, it, what keeps coming up for me is the idea of, of instead of fixing these things or being in charge of these things, it's the idea of cooperation with, with the body and with other bodies. And I think that is a, I think that's a running theme, not only for this podcast, but what I'm seeing in the greater work of people working with bodies mm-hmm. is the idea of, of people being, you know, in relationship, but a cooperative relationship. Like I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. The body probably doesn't have all the, you know, it's a, it's a cooperative experience. And I don't know that we're necessarily looking to absolve or change anything, but it's just switching the dialogue and understanding the somatic markers in this conversation in a different way as something that educates the body rather than entraps the body. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea. I mean, you know, whenever we're fighting against something, that generally doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, it 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 um, if we're fighting and, and fighting against a bit of ourselves, really doesn't work. <laughs> right, right. Um, 
you know, in some ways that keeps it in existence. And so there is this piece around learning to cooperate and learning to accept what is. You know, it's the way I think about it is, you know, there, there are some people that we all meet in life who um, they're in relationship with the world as it should be. It should be this way. <laughs> and they take action based on how the world should be and then spend their life getting upset that it isn't that. Yeah, boy. They're in an ongoing process of eternal upset. Mm-hmm. And it is a futile and ineffective place. Because when we're in relationship with the world as it should be, we're not in relationship with it as it is. And so mm-hmm. the ability to affect change or to move in a different way with the world is is removed from that yeah. from from that interaction, and and so it is. I think with the body is you know we 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 have to be in a relationship where we starting point is to accept what is, um, you know that, that it should be this way, it should be that way is a route to dissatisfaction and happiness, and probably not to taking action, which will start to shift or change or move or give the body more flexibility or whatever it is that we're looking for, more grace and movement, whatever. So I, I suppose I think, yeah, I think there is some wisdom in, in cooperating and accepting um, and allowing what is to be as the basis of our effectiveness in trying to move towards something else. Mm. I think that's true in all, in all aspects of life, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. So, I'm curious. So, uh, you brought up a little bit about fight or flight and Vegas mm-hmm. nerve. How does all of that? How does all of that interplay with somatic markers? Is that where the some? How, how do somatic markers work? Like, where is that information in the body? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, no, let me see. I'm I'm going to, I I may be a little cagey here. Um, So where does that information lie in the body is is a really interesting question. And, I mean, basically, I don't think you're able to separate that into one place. Um, uh-huh. You know, certainly the older parts of the brain, what some people call the reptilian brain or the amygdala, um, is heavily involved in that. But the, also you've got the endocrine process, the hormonal processes of the body which are involved in that. And so um, what, what you've got is you've got a whole series of processes which are involved in uh, storing those things and giving us access in those moments. and. I'm not maybe expressing myself very clearly here. If we step back for a moment, the separation of the body into different bits uh-huh. is a fairly modern construction and doesn't always help us. Right. So why do, we, why do we separate the brain and the spinal cord and the, neural, the nerve system from each other when they're all actually one big piece that all works together? Why do we do that? Um, why do we separate the organs from each other where we separate them? 
Some of them kind of make more sense than others, but you know, we try to separate them out on, on different anatomical basis, and some of them is, is historical. But when we look from a functional perspective and we look at the way in which functions happen within the body, what we see is that the brain impacts the endocrine system, which sends messages back to the brain, and they work as one functional process. They're no, they don't work as separate processes separately. They actually work as an intertwined functional process. And so the reason why I kind of giving a slight cagey response is that I think this is one of those examples of an intertwined functional process, which involves multiple aspects of the body working together in one functional process, which doesn't correlate with the organs and the bits as we necessarily chop them up and define them from a Western medical education. Um, so yes, the amygdala is heavily involved in it. We've got the endocrine system that are involved in it. We've got the um, the uh, sympathetic nervous system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've got all of these different bits that are involved in stimulating that. Um, but you know, which one of them would you say holds it? I don't know that we really know that. <laughs> I mean, the best guess would probably be the amygdala is, is a massive part of what recognises that, but that's probably most accurately stated as a guess. Mm. Because mm-hmm. you know, what's it doing? Well, it's taking in data that's coming from the senses, what, you know, uh, et cetera. So we're taking it and we're taking in data that's coming from across the body, back in and, and making sense of that. And it's, yes, it's a quick response. It's not one that's diverted through cognitive, you know, the neocortex and most neural parts of the brain. But but it's it's a really interesting question of where does that information come in and what does it impact first? Does it impact the amygdala first? Does it impact other parts of the body first? Uh, question to be to be answered is would be my, my sense of it. But I, I think there's one functional process which operates which is beyond just parts of the brain it's it's interesting to me as a non-answer only because i think it's compelling to um i know for sure the way that james and i facilitate movement exploration which which is what i would define that you know how we do what we do mostly these days um to bring people's attention uh, equally, right, to the different experiences that they're having. Um, mm. and, and for me, you know, I, I use some very specific tools that, that link back to um, uh, kind of like a somatic meditation for people of, of attention, right? If you bring attention to the different experiences, you were speaking to this a little bit earlier, Um, of like, what's the, you know, what's the emotional content? What's the emotional tone in the moment of an experience? What's, what's the mental tone, right? The mind state or the thoughts, the quality, you know, kind of like the, the, um, intellectual container of the experience. And then what is the, what's the, what's the corresponding physical experience or tone of, of whatever it is that you are engaged in, in the moment. And that, for me, it's like not about making a priority of any of those three aspects, but to get the student to be able to just notice, right. And to be able to shift attention from these different places, because uh, it's not 
necessarily, uh, from my viewpoint, um, one being the priority, right, or or the root. You know, we're in this discussion about where are these things located. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. Can you become potentially aware of all of the varieties of experiences um, so that out in the world you are you are more able to, as you were speaking to earlier, Pete, just notice like here I am in, I'm having this experience again. And can I, can I create some space between my reactivity, um, you know, and the experience so that I might choose a different action, right? A different behavior, a different physical action, you know, whether that's biomechanical or if it's, um, you know, emotional, psychological. Yeah. I think I want to build on that a little bit because I think you're right. And we often in this work, we talk about we start with attention and we bring our attention to things and we build from that awareness at all of these different levels. And we build that awareness and that awareness gives us choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the first part of the journey inside of the embodied work that I would do. It's the first part. And I say it's the first part because there's a whole group of people who stop at awareness mm. and it's the kind of people who say, Oh yeah, you know, I, I know I do that. It's kind of just what I do. And I'm, you know, I know why I do it and I know all the history of it and I've <laughs> years about it and yada, yada, but you know, they're not actually taking any responsibility for it. Mm. Um, and, and there's a whole group of people in the world who, who become a little bit of a junkie for awareness. It's kind of like they want that next high of that moment of awareness of insight, and they're looking for the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And there's there's a piece beyond that, and it's the piece where we bring our volition, our willpower into action at that place of choice to be able to take a different action in the world. And to be able to take a different action, that you know, as we know from any body movement thing, when you take a different action, it's clunky at first. <laughs> you know, it's kind of right hand here, left hand here, right. You know, it's it, it's a bit like playing the game Twister, where you kind of got to put your arms and legs in the right place, uh, and and it's clunky. And but with practice, we can start to cultivate a different uh, type of embodied response, a different level of embodied capacity to take new actions in the world. And and that's the kind of path to really true accountability and responsibility for who we are in the world. And so for me, I think the, the, everything you said was, was beautiful. And for me, there's just this, the really important next step is that we also bring our attention to what is it to bring ourselves into ongoing practices through which we cultivate the ability to take different actions in the world. Mm-hmm. And that we cultivate different qualities in the world. And, and that, I think, is, a, is, a, is the other really important part of, for me, the embodied work that I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I think, um, and the reason I brought up the where is it in the body yeah. thing is I think when people hear things like somatic markers, or even from a more generic standpoint, like I'm feeling this, I'm doing this and I'm feeling this. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a common assumption that it's like that thing, that emotion or that feeling is living here. That thing is like in my rib or it's that shoulder thing coming up again. Or I know I have a weak leg. And so whenever I do this, that, that emotion lives here. And I think to begin to understand it as, as a process, and I think that's what 
you know, um, from your talk of, of amygdala and vagus nerve and endocrine system and brain to Chantel's discussion of like, how do you process through these movement experiences? I think both of them reiterate each other. It's, it's, we're dealing with a process. And so as you're feeling these things, as you're choosing to move either emotionally through these things or physically through these things, or hopefully both, to understand that what your body is going through is a process. And so to become an active member of that process, I think leads, leads us to, to your point there, Pete, of choosing, being okay with being vulnerable within the process and then choosing to respond versus react to the process and to sort of let yourself go into a new, into a new mode of being and, and discovering whatever might be there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, um, yeah, everything's processed in my world. <laughs> um, yeah. I, um, what I mean by that is, you know, if you, if you have a if you have an itch on the body and you don't scratch it and you sit with it, you'll realize that it kind of builds in intensity for a period of time and it reaches some kind of peak and then it drifts away. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not here for all eternity. It doesn't arrive and <laughs> stay with you until you do something with it. It, it. it has its own process. And that everything, our emotions rise and fall in a process that um, our, our basic sensations in the body arise and fall and process that everything is a vibrant ongoing process that I am a vibrant ongoing process of thoughts, emotions, sensations. And that that is process, that is a process that is interpenetrated with the rest of the world and the, the other processes and the other people. And, and I think when we see it like that, actually a lot, the, the fixed nature of things becomes really um, an interesting you know, thing to question. You know, we tend to view things as, a, as very fixed things, but actually there's lots of ongoing processes. And, and what I see is that when we start to hold and, and, and to shape ourselves and to, to kind of hold points of tension in the body, it's almost like part of what we're doing is we're, we're holding on to something. We're trying to, to stop or to, to, to minimize the ongoing process of what's going on. So take, take grief, for example. Grief is a, is a, a wonderful, beautiful process. I, I um, a number of years ago, um, lost a family member and I'm going through the grief process. I, I realized that, you know, in language, sometimes we talk about, um, I grieve or you grieve or somebody grieves, like almost like they're doing it. But that's mm-hmm. not how it works. Grief kind of does no. us. <laughs> you know, yeah. we need yeah. to suppress it and hold it. And we can physically try to stop that process. But actually, it's a process and it does us. And uh-huh. the key is that when we're holding and reshipping ourselves and holding ourselves away from the world or responding to the world, is what we're trying to do is stop some kind of process that's ongoing. You know, that we're holding on to something. And so there is something um, I think about allowing processes to happen through us. And at some level, there's, you know, this ties back into the cooperative bit. It ties back into a lot of spiritual thinking. But there's a surrender to some of those processes. You surrender to grief. 
you know, maybe not every moment, every day, because you've kind of got to get on with your life. You've got to make arrangements. You've got things to plan and funerals and whatever else. But there is a surrender to the process. There's allowing ourselves to go through the process that, and to allow it to do what it needs to do with us. Mm. And I think so much of life is that is, you know, there, there are life is, is these processes and, are we able to allow these processes to run inside of us? Or are we, you know, are, do we become, you know, our, our like or dislike of them shapes us in terms of trying to, to, um, to, to become attached to them or to have an aversion to them, to use the, the Buddhist kind of philosophy around it, um, aversion or attachment, or whatever you want to call it. But are we trying to suppress or repress something or hold on to something because of that, rather than just allowing the process to, to, um, to have its course? It's really, I mean, this is uh, a, uh, such a rich and wonderful conversation. And I feel like, you know, to, to speak to James, you know, you said, James, this idea about being vulnerable and Pete, you're speaking to this surrender. And it's my experience in my, in my own life and body, uh, and what, and moving students that it takes, this is like the gateway one must walk through in mm-hmm. order to really be receptive to the action that you're talking about, Pete, of, you know, taking like there's attention and awareness and then there is surrender to that, right? Not just holding it as a badge of like, oh, look at me. I'm so smart. I have had some insights and I'm so insightful. And, wow. and, then, and then we're stuck in that. Like, but, but this surrender, this vulnerability, whether we are talking about developing new strategies of behavior around you know, leading um, and being in relationship with people that way, or we're talking about biomechanics, we're talking about movement strategies, that really what I see is that this, this willingness to surrender, to accept what is happening in the moment, is what allows us to, to like be receptive to the new thing. Um, you know, I was, I was teaching a, um, I'm teaching this wacky, you know, advanced movement class. And uh, I told them last night, I said, I, I thoroughly expect the the shapes are ugly, like make it as ugly as possible. Right? That it's, you know, be willing to be just totally in the body, right? The fullness of whatever the body needs in the moment and, and notice that it's, it's, it is ugly. Like it's okay that, that it is that way. And, and if you can settle into that, then, you know, you can move towards something becoming more efficient or, or more aesthetically pleasing or, you know, from the movement perspective, um, uh, it, it ties into some of the Jungian ideas that um, you know that, that in some ways when we're not, niceness is in some ways a way to to hide from kind of our own yuckiness. <laughs> you know, yeah. people are perennially nice, and that actually a developmental step for people who are perennially nice is to engage with their yuckiness. <laughs> Yeah. Not a great place to stop, but it's a moving yeah. forward. Well, engage with your yuckiness. That's the, that's yeah, the so, so lesson. Lesson for today, everyone. Be okay with the ugly yucky and go, yeah. go and explore the ugly yucky. Mm. So speaking <laughs> of, speaking of, for people 
for people listening that are wanting to begin to explore these topics, what are some resources that they can turn to, um, websites, books, names, beyond your own, where they can begin to go like, oh, okay, this is, some, this is some further exploration? Okay. So the, the first place I'd recommend, I mean, based out in, in your part of the world, would be Strozzi Institute, um, run by, founded by Richard Strozzi Heckler. Um, which I think is a, a great place for looking at um, embodied development. I think he's he's one of the master practitioners of this world. Um, he he draws on so many different disciplines and has worked with so many masters himself. And and you know I, I'm I, I consider myself privileged to be one of his students, um, uh, given his lineage of teachers uh, and teachership. So he would be a, a great place to start. There's also in the same same part of the world, the Bay Area, you've also got Wendy Palmer. Uh, and she's got people who work all across the US and across the world these days, um, who's an interesting person to work with. Um, and they both have books um, out there on different aspects of embodiment and leadership and, and development. Then there's kind of the world of um, uh, resources that start to bring you into um, uh, wider issues of somatic and how we hold ourselves. So the um, Stanley Kellerman's work, uh, Emotional Anatomy, is a great book, uh, just a beautiful book. Some of the illustrations in that book are just so beautiful at capturing some uh, really profound concepts. And so I think there's some, re some really, really good stuff in, in his work. Um, there's also, I'm just trying to look at my bookshelf to remember the names. <laughs> uh, Thomas Hanna. Uh, wrote a book called Somatics, um, which I think is a really uh, useful book, especially I think that that will be less on the leadership and more looking at healing or um, movement. So I think that might be more uh, in your in your kind of audience's interest. Um, so I think those are some good ones. And um, yeah. then I think, you know, I would always look to, you know, body and movement traditions and look at people find people who are aware that they're working through the body. So it's, you know, whether it's Rolfing, Feldenkrais technique, uh, Alexander technique, but there are great practitioners out there who are aware that they're doing more than just postural alignment or something like that, that they know that they're doing more of that work. And that's a great place to start. So those, I think, are some really good um, uh, resources to go to. Uh, I do have... On one of my websites, I have a website for my book, um, embodiedleadership.net, has a list of resources, um, which is more complete than I can give you from the top of my head. So that I would say, um, yeah, there's a whole list and, and stream of different resources that are available there. It's a long list. I was looking at it this morning, actually. Um, yeah. yeah. We'll include all of that information uh, in the show notes for people cool. who are listening. So. Um, and links to your book, Pete, and ways to, um, I know you have a website for your bl the blog I was looking at recently. So lots and lots of ways for people to connect with you. Um, and then we'll put all of the additional resources um, on, the, on the show notes page. So um, okay, what a gift it's been really to talk with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really. Thank you. It's always yeah. fun to dialogue with people who are in the same kind of conversation. Yeah.
<laughs> and uh, Pete, before we let you go, this season on the podcast, we've been uh, centering around the theme of celebration. Yeah. And so uh, we've been ending all of the podcasts with a simple question of within your practice, what will you be mm. celebrating this year? <laughs> interesting. Within which practice? That's a really interesting uh, question. Take it however yeah. you'd like. Uh, so I'm uh, currently working on a part-time PhD and by the end of this year, I should be finishing my field work and getting into the writing up stage. So I'll be practicing that. Um, <laughs> at the start of, at the start of, well, about March last year, I started a, a new martial art, which is Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And so I'm hoping to get to my blue belt this year. Um, so I'm nice. a beginner there. But I'm, I'm hoping to get to that. So that's another thing to, to, to uh, celebrate. So there, there's a couple for you, but there's probably more. Awesome. Wonderful. I love it. The part Thank you so much, Pete. Pete. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> oh, Pete, thank you so much. It was a real You're pleasure. Welcome. Well, another really wonderful conversation. Stick around for just a moment because we have a little bit more to share with you. By now, many of you have heard about Momentum Fest, this awesome celebration of movement and Pilates that's happening this summer, June, June 22nd through 24th in Broomfield, Colorado. And this is the inaugural year of this event created by Jessica and Brian Vallant. And as the days tick by and the seasons begin to change, I've been thinking a lot about the summertime and being there in Colorado and at the Omni Lockin Hotel and Retreat Center for the festival. And so I thought that I would share a little fantasy daydream with you about being there because sometimes it's just cool to put ourselves a little bit out in the future and to kind of sink into what the experience might be like. So for me, I'm imagining sunshine and clean air as I walk around the hotel and the retreat center, which is so gorgeous. And you know, you have that, that sense of like the smell of the trees and the retreat center is surrounded Um, by trees, which is so beautiful. And then, of course, there's lounging areas and there are pools and there's just this scent about it. There's a smell of summer. There's the smell of the trees. And then there's the sound of happy people. And this is the thing that I, that my attention keeps being drawn to is the sound of my friends and my colleagues Uh, their excited chatter, the smiles on their faces. And you know, when you leave a movement class or you watch a student leave and you can see how almost vibrant they look, right? Their faces are relaxed, their bodies are at ease, they're walking more smoothly. I'm just imagining um, like an acre worth of people walking around like this and talking about how good it is to be moving and to be around people who just want to move and without any, you know, need for it to be right or wrong, or even without any need to call what we're doing Pilates, just, just moving and just exploring. And for me, the Momentum Fest is going to be such a, an awesome opportunity to really just move and to see how people are being creative in their own bodies 
and um, to have a ton of fun and really take the time to be in celebration of ourselves, our bodies and movement. And to do that with people of like-mindedness in the middle of a beautiful setting, I just can't think of anything better. So want to make sure you have all the information about Momentum Fest. Again, it's happening June 22nd through 24th in Broomfield, Colorado, which is right outside of Boulder, very close to the airport. And there is an amazing lineup of teachers, including our very own James Crater. I know we've got a whole posse of people from Northern California who are going. Um, The other thing I wanted to make sure that you knew about was the opportunities to become an ambassador for Momentum Fest. And you can find out more about that on their website, MomentumFest.com. There are, of course, all the necessary links in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, Let them know if you have any questions, and we'll be seeing you there, we hope. And speaking of seeing you... You can look in the show notes, dig around, and see what James and Deborah and I are up to. We've got so much coming up this spring and into the summer and even making big plans for the fall and winter of 2018. So if you want to connect with us, you want to hang out with us and do some moving and grooving, look at where we're going to be. We also want to tell you how grateful we are for you and for the time that you take to listen to the podcast. If you love the podcast, if you love what we're talking about, if you want to share it, we would love that too. And so one of the best ways you can do to spread the word is to leave us a review on iTunes. And it's so super simple. Once you get hooked up and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, you can leave a review and um, tell the world how lovely you think we are. (laughs) Um, We really are grateful for you and it's your conversations and your comments and your feedback that keep driving us forward and um, keep just affirming that we're on the right track. So you can also like us on Facebook, Thinking Pilates Podcast. Check out our new beautiful website. If you haven't already, that's where the show notes live, thinkingpilates.com. We want to hear from you, so leave your comments uh, at the bottom of each podcast uh, post, and we can interact with you, we can answer your questions, we can, um, you know, really just be in dialogue with each other. The other way to reach us is thinkingpilatespodcast at gmail.com, so if you have a request, an idea for a conversation, something you want us to talk about, somebody you want us to talk to, that is the best way to get in touch with us. We're not going to hold you hostage any longer, so have a beautiful day, and until next time, teach well.